This is The Legal Impact, the weekly show presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs, learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or hosts and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead, and we're broadcasting from the Intellectual Property Summer Institute, an annual program we host here at UNH Franklin Pierce. You can learn more about the program at law.unh.edu slash IPSI. Excited to be joined today by adjunct professor and class of 2010 alum Richard Kurz, who's a partner at Haug Partners LLP. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. What do you do over at Haug Partners? Like, what's your focus? Sure. Well, Haug Partners is a law firm where our main office is in New York City, and then we've also got offices in a a couple of other places. And the firm has got, um, it's IP-centric. And by IP-centric, I mean that a lot of the work that we do revolves around patents and trademarks, but we also have ancillary practices, like we get into antitrust issues, FDA issues, and commercial disputes. So uh, the work that I do at the firm tends to focus on uh, patent litigation, and most of that is in the pharmaceutical space. And then I also work on uh, collaboration and licensing agreements because a, a lot of what pharmaceuticals do is they collaborate with other pharmaceutical companies or with universities to bring new drugs to, mar- to a market. And your course that you're teaching for IPSI is Pharmaceutical Patents, Patent Protection and Litigation in the Life Sciences Industry. And the big the big flashing, this is a, an important aspect, is patents. I mean, <laughs> right. That must be like one of the, the most important things when it comes to protecting the, uh, the drug, whether it's from a safety perspective for consumers, uh, brand protection, licensing, and everything like that. Yeah, well, for pharmaceutical companies, um, one thing that, um, frankly, I didn't know until I got involved with this industry is um, how much work goes into developing new drugs and new therapies. And patents are the main way that the company makes sure that they recoup that investment. So from what I've seen in the published literature, and it kind of bears itself out with what I've seen from confidential company documents too, is the average new drug costs uh, in the order of billions, with a B, billions of dollars to develop. And for all the ones that aren't successful, there's a dozen more, or for all the ones that were successful, there's a dozen more that aren't successful. So as a result, um, companies spend years and years developing a drug, getting FDA approval, and patent rights, which are a right to exclude, are the way that they um, basically can market the drug for a period of time and recoup that huge investment that they're making. And when it comes to government regulation for such things, unlike a software technology patent or something like that, you deal with all the FDA and various other governmental agencies in order to get something to the point where this patent can be utilized. Yeah, and that, that's, that's a large part of it, too, is that um, it isn't as easy as just coming up with this idea that, hey, this, this might be a, a drug. Um, once you've come up with that idea, to get approval from the FDA, you have to prove that the drug is safe and effective for use. And to prove safety and efficacy um, can take, um, you know, best case a few years, worst case many years. And uh, the safety and efficacy pro- process is first proving that the drug doesn't kill somebody. Yeah. Very important. Um, then after that, you go through a series of clinical studies, which are called uh, phase one and phase two trials, to uh, 
prove to the FDA that the drug has a safety profile, a risk profile that um, the FDA thinks is worth the benefit of the drug. And of course, you also have to prove that the drug is effective at treating or curing whatever disease, and that process takes years. And it's not uncommon that once you get into the clinical trials that um, there will be some sort of adverse event or or issue that will result in a drug being abandoned. So it's a very important process, and you think about what could happen if you didn't have that process, um, what it could mean to the public. But as you pointed out, you know, one of the downsides of that is that it does take many years to prove to the FDA that the drug should be marketed, that it um, is effective and it is safe. So uh, for the pharmaceutical companies, that's part of that investment that they make and that they want to protect with patents. A common thing in the realm of laws, risk management, which you which you touched upon a bit in that. I mean, how do pharmaceuticals deal with this risk? Is it What sort of protections do they have to make sure that when they're doing this process, which is very important, we get these life-saving drugs uh, very, very frequently from it, but the, the chances of someone getting hurt in, in the clinical studies, the chance that the drug is just completely ineffective, and they've essentially wasted years of research in some ins- instances. How, how do they deal with that? Yeah, well, pharmaceutical companies, they put a lot of effort into um, developing clinical trial protocols um, that mitigate that risk as much as possible. And it isn't just the pharmaceutical company working in a vacuum. They have meetings with the FDA talking about their plans for developing a drug. And um, they kind of take it in baby steps. So the very first clinical trials tend to be a small number of uh, patients um, because they're just trying to make sure that the drug has the promise of being effective while having a risk profile that's suitable. And I can explain that what I mean by risk profile in a minute. But um, And then as time goes on, they go into trials that have larger and larger number of patients. So that way, um, they can prove that once they have a wider population of patients, um, because there can be you know, different genetic traits, there can be um, different uh, race or gender-based traits that might affect the efficacy of a drug, um, they want to be able to test as many of those permutations as possible um, so they can bring the drug to market um, and know that it's going to work. Uh, one thing that I touched on that I said I'd come back to is the risk profile. Mm. Uh, one of the things that the FDA also looks at is um, what becomes an approvable drug is kind of a sliding scale. So if a drug is going to treat, for instance, cancer, um, where the cancer is likely to eventually kill whoever suffering from it, the FDA will allow a drug that has a worse side effect profile than it would for something that cures like a headache. You're going to have chemotherapy for cancer, not I have, I have the sniffles. Exactly. <laughs> so, so a drug that's for the sniffles has to have a super safe risk profile. A drug that um, can improve the um, likelihood of a cancer patient living for a longer period of time can have a worse risk profile because at the end of the day, what the FDA is looking for is how can they treat more and more patients and make their lifespans um, increase under that circumstance. So there's a lot that goes into developing a new drug and also making sure that it's appropriate for the disease that it's trying to treat. That um, 
this might be more in the the realm of pharmaceutical business as opposed to what we're talking about. I'm not really sure, but with the this this risk, the high risk pool, usually it's a lot less people that would be in it. I mean, how do these pharmaceutical companies justify that uh, that financial risk that comes from only treating a small amount of people? Obviously, we don't want uh, a cancer patient be spending five million dollars for a treatment, if at all possible. Yeah, and and that is one of the trade offs that goes into it, and. Um, you know, with a lot of these diseases, they're referred to as rare diseases. Mm-hmm. And um, as a as a gross generalization, you know, it isn't you know the whole story. You know, a lot of the easy to treat diseases, there's already cures because the patient population was big enough that a lot of companies and organizations put effort into curing them. A, a lot of the future of medicine is really treating those rare diseases mm-hmm. because there are a lot of diseases out there where there either isn't a cure or the treatments that are out there aren't really what anyone wants. Um, but as you pointed out, those rare diseases have a smaller population. So there is a trade-off in terms of the cost of the drug versus the population. And that's one of the things that's actually kind of playing out a little bit um, with um genetic treatments. There's a lot of gene therapies that are under development right now where the gene therapies are a way to potentially cure some really devastating um, genetic um, disorders. But one of the um, things that both the companies and FDA are really struggling with is, you know, how do you price these drugs? Because they cost a, a lot of money to develop. And if it's something where, you know, you treat a patient you know, um, for the disease and it really is effective and gets rid of the disease, well, once you cure that disease for a patient, you basically have to recoup the whole investment, right. whereas other drugs might be something that you take, you know, once a day for the rest of your life. And that's something that um, drug companies and insurance companies and, you know, the governments around the world are really dealing with is how do you deal with that? Um, I guess the good thing is is that there is a lot of work that's going into developing these therapies. And, you know, in the future, um, we might really be able to get to a point where some diseases that are really horrible to for patients who have them um, might actually be cured. So that's pretty exciting going forward. It's just how do you pay for it? And one of the ways that drugs ultimately become less expensive is biosimilars and generics. So how complex is it from a patent perspective to to go into that realm as a pharmaceutical company? So um, there's actually two very different scenarios. For generic drugs, um, uh, there's a statute called the Hatch-Waxman Act that was originally enacted in 1984. And the Hatch-Waxman Act um, enabled uh, quicker transitions from branded drugs to generic drugs, and that's in what's called the small molecule space. And that system has been very robust and has really um, um, brought a lot of um, drugs to market much sooner than they would have, either because the generics can prove that uh, the patents protecting the branded drug are either invalid or not infringed, or um, what often happens is the generic and the branded company will reach some sort of a compromise and settle a litigation um, with a settlement uh, including an earlier launch date for the generic so they don't have to wait the full life of the patent. Um, that law has, has really been a game changer in terms of bringing affordable drugs to market um, much sooner than what would have uh, happened 
before the law. Um, and the other thing that you brought up, though, is biosimilars. Yeah. Biosimilars are still, in my mind, kind of a work in process. Um, Can you define a, what biosimilar is? Yeah, so whereas a, a small molecule drug, you know, what you think of as a traditional brand or generic type drug, uh, those are drugs that can be synthesized chemically. They tend to be relatively inexpensive to manufacture. And with a branded name product, a lot of what you're paying for is the company trying to recoup its R&D investment. And with a generic drug, because they don't have much at all of a R&D investment, um, the products tend to be very inexpensive to manufacture. With any kind of biologic drug, you're really dealing with something where you're taking, for instance, a cell line, or in the case of a vaccine, you know, a virus, um, or in the case of you know genetic therapies such as the COVID vaccine, um, you know, uh, DNA or RNA technology, and you're basically manufacturing um, something that resembles a biological material in a lab-type format, and with that you can cure diseases that you just can't cure with small molecules or treat diseases. It isn't always a cure. Um, for the branded biologic drug, um, the development timeline to bring those to market is much, much longer than a small molecule drug. The manufacturing cost tends to be very, very high. So when you pay, you buy a biologic drug and you see the price tag, it'll tend to seem very high. But the reality is, is that the manufacturing cost uh, might be a very sizable portion of that, whereas with a small molecule drug, it might not be. Right. Um, and for biosimilars, um, because biosimilars by default are growing, literally growing different cell lines, they're never going to be identical to the brand. Um, they might be close. Um, and the manufacturing cost for the biosimilar manufacturer is every bit as high as what it is for the branded manufacturer. And also, uh, they have to do a lot more um, development and clinical trials to prove that it's safe and effective because, again, they're starting with a different cell line. And even if you're a brand, if you move your manufacturing from one piece of machinery to another piece of machinery, it can radically change the properties of the drug. So they have to go through an approval process just to change machinery, even if it's wow. in the brand's own factory. More risk. Uh, a lot more <laughs> risk. Um, so as a result, biosimilars take a lot more time to develop. It takes um, a lot more time to get approved by the FDA. And the price point difference for biosimilars isn't as great as it is for uh, branded drugs. So I think it's still a work in process. Um, you, there are very few biosimilars that have made it to the market. And I think it'll continue to be a slow process as both from a legal point of view, they work through the issues, um, interpreting the new um, BPCIA Act, which is kind of like the biologic version of the Hatch-Waxman Act, and then also um, coming up with ways to um, develop these um, biologic molecules more effectively. So in the last four and a half minutes we have left, I want to dive into COVID a little bit. And when when you saw the restrictions of come down that were required for the COVID vaccines to come through as an attorney who deals with the risk and the patent side of it was that a an exciting or a fearful time or a mix of both um well you know the the COVID 
pandemic uh, was obviously a once in a lifetime event for Knock on one. <laughs> pretty much everyone. And hopefully it's, an, it's, a, it's the only in a lifetime event for a lot of people. And you think back to um, the beginning of 2020 when the COVID pandemic was still getting started. Um, no one really knew where it was going, how bad it would be. Um, lots of people were suffering. Lots of people were passing away. And um, then around March, you know, the world started to shut down quite literally, um, just trying to stop the virus. And I guess the good thing is that from that, um, vaccines were developed in um, at a very uh, fast rate um, using technologies that were already being developed for other kinds of uh, viruses, such as the influenza or um, even uh, their cancer treatments and all that. And a lot of companies uh, were obviously very incentivized to work with each other to um, develop the new vaccines. I guess, you know, the amazing thing from it too is how quickly uh, these COVID vaccines were approved because you think about it, a biologic normally with the FDA, you might be talking a decade. Yeah. And here you were talking about a year. And part of that um, was because you know, going back to that risk-reward, the FDA was very willing to work with companies to accelerate um, the timeline to bring the COVID vaccines to market. But in reality, you know, the population as a whole really was kind of like one big clinical trial right. once the vaccines were introduced. And, you know, there were definitely risks um, involved in, you know, trying this new therapy because I believe it's true that it was the first mRNA um uh, antiviral that was uh, brought to market or, you know, um, vaccine that was brought to market, not antiviral, but new vaccine. Um, but the reward was is that there was no cure for COVID and uh, people were really uh, wanted to, to stop the uh, pandemic. So um, it was very interesting time in history. And uh, so far, it's worked out um, much better than I think probably most people uh, expected, um, but it's hopefully the start to, um, um, you know, reducing the severity and likelihood of, um, you know, more shutdowns in the future. Do you expect Project Warp Speed and the various aspects to it, to any parts of it, to reform the current system that's in place to get drugs to market? Uh, I don't know about that. Um, and from a policy standpoint, you know, the FDA tends to be um, and I think rightfully so, tends to be very risk averse um, because you think about it, if you um, have a new um, drug or biologic that comes to market uh, that fails spectacularly, you know, the cure might be worse than the disease. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that with the framework that was used for this, um, at least, you know, the FDA and the companies who dealt with it have probably learned a lot about how they could accelerate the progress when they have something like a pandemic come up. Adjunct Professor and Class of 2010 alum Richard Kurz, partner at Hulk Partners, LLP, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the back episodes of the show and podcast links at law.unh.edu slash podcast.